Who is the Lord that I should obey him is the question that Pharaoh asked. This is not coming from an atheist. This is coming from a pluralist that's saying, why should I bother to listen to your God? That's a question that many people have asked. And we get a chance to witness to, to point out that our God is not just a judge, but our God is a saving judge. This sermon was originally recorded at Meadowview Elementary School, June 16th, Father's Day, 2013. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Am I up here? I'm on here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series in Exodus. We're hoping to go through the book of Exodus rather quickly through the months of the summer. So we're going to be in here in the wilderness, in a sense, for two months, and then we're going to get back to our normal home the first week of August. So we're pretty excited about that. And there's also talk of an all-church dodgeball tournament that happens the last Sunday of July. If people are looking down when I said dodgeball tournament, people looked up. That's interesting. So we're talking maybe the last week of the month, so we're excited about that. At least I'm excited about that. We just tested some balls in the back. Uh, so we're in the book of Exodus, which is uh, an interesting book. So if you remember from last time, here's a picture from, if you can see it, it's a little bit darker. I think the movie is called The Ten Commandments, and that was from about 07. So if you can see Moses uh, looking pretty good for his age, he's 80 years old in this picture. Um, the, uh, pretty good, right? So he's a man on the run. So Moses is a fugitive. He killed someone when he was 40 years old. He's been on the run, and, and can you say an 80-year-old man is on the run? Is that, is, so, so Moses uh, is an 80-year-old fugitive on the walk, and God comes to him in the burning bush and says, Moses, I've got a job for you. I have seen the very same things that you have seen. I have seen the oppression of Israel. I've seen your pain. I've seen the trouble of your people. I want to do what you tried to do 40 years ago. And remember, Moses is pretty excited about this. You can imagine him like, yes, Lord. I know, I, I hear, we're on the same page here. Um, you, you, everything that I'm thinking, you're thinking. But then God says, I want you to go. And Moses is not too pumped about this, so he has this whole list of excuses. We went through just chapter 3. He makes excuses for two chapters. First, he's like, well, Lord, what do, they're not going to believe me. What am I supposed to tell them? He says, well, tell them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. Well, what name should I tell them? Because I don't, oh, what, what am I supposed to tell him? And he says, well, then tell him the I am has sent you. He says, okay, okay. I'm not very good at talking, Lord. And so he goes, all right, um, this is in chapter 4. I'll send your brother Aaron, and things are going to work out. Okay. But what if Pharaoh doesn't believe me? And he goes, okay, um, take your staff, throw it down. It's going to turn into a snake. If you put your hand in your cloak and pull it out, it'll be leprous. If you remember this and you put it back in, it's going to be uh, regular again. He even says, you can just take like... Um, a pot of water, and turn it into blood in Pharaoh's presence. So all this, these are all the promises, and he still makes excuses, and God starts to get angry, and it's like, and Moses is like, okay, okay, I'm going. So Moses goes there, and this is through chapter 4, and the section that we're going to look at today is parts of, you notice I did a bookend of the first plague and the ninth plague. So I did some bookends because we don't really have time to do like a whole section on each of the plagues and what do the plagues mean. Besides that, it would lend itself to kind of some misinterpretation and things like that. So I thought, you know what? An overview, why did God send these ten plagues? So just think in your head, why did God send the ten plagues? And it, there's two kind of quick answers that some people say. One is, A, he sent these plagues so that, um, to punish the bad people, right? And some people are excited about that. My God takes care of wickedness, and he, he punishes that. That's the very reason some people on the other end don't like God. 
and they don't like organized religion in general. They're like, okay, who wants to worship a God who just um, willy-nilly just shoots down judgment on people? This is not good. I think both of those answers are a little bit incomplete. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in these chapters, uh, and the plagues actually go from chapter 5 until chapter 11, and the Passover starts in chapter 12. We're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about this. So Moses appears before Pharaoh and says, I let my people go so that they can go hold a festival, a worship in the desert. And what, of course, does Pharaoh think of this idea? Eh. Pharaoh's response, this is in chapter 5, is, who is the Lord? And then he finishes it, that I should obey him. And this, this, I think, is a worthy response, at least from Pharaoh's perspective. He's saying, okay, at that time, there were religious pluralists, or uh, they, they believed in multiple gods. So it's not that Pharaoh was asking the question, is there actually a God? You might run into someone once in a while who says, I don't believe there's any kind of God. Who's God that I should obey him? That's really not what's happening right here. He's a pluralist, which is, and I've shared this idea before, there were no atheists back then. There was like zero. Everybody believed in deities. And everyone, this is a natural thing for all human beings. And they all had their localized gods kind of like your localized sports teams and things like that. And sometimes they would even talk trash about their gods. So you have your sports team. You can't imagine that scenario, can you? People talking trash about their, their gods. The same thing is true. Little kids do this too when they go to play. And I can hear, I was working on my car, and I heard my son talking to the other neighborhood kid about dads. And he didn't quite come out quite like this, but it's like my dad's bigger than your dad, and I was going to interrupt. No, actually, Randy's way bigger than I am. Oh, and just pipe down. This is not good. Um, so... But boys do that, right? They're like, my dad's bigger than your dad. My dad's stronger than your dad. My dad's faster than your dad. This is the same. They did that with their gods. So they had these localized gods, and they said, here's my god. We worship Ra. We worship the Nile. You have your god. But let's just see whose is stronger. So this is part of the idea. The Pharaoh is asking, why should I bother to listen to your god when I've got my own? In fact, the Egyptians looked at Pharaoh as a god. So he's saying, why should I bother? So we're going to see a couple things. God is not just showing these plagues to show raw power, and i got some reasons to tell you that. But he is showing that, A, he's a unique God. He's going to show that he's the natural judge, and he's going to show that he's not just a judge for judgment's sake, but he's a saving judge, which makes him different than all other gods on the whole planet. So we're in, um, we're in the book of Exodus. The plagues are coming, and... We're going to come back to the uniqueness of God. But first, how do we say that God is natural? God has made these rules to Pharaoh. He says, I want you to obey me. And now there's natural consequences in a bit. And now, I know this is kind of a stretch a little bit. Did the, um, the plagues come when Moses said? Yes. Did they only happen sometimes to the Egyptians and not to the Jewish people? Yes. But isn't there a kind of a naturalness to them? Here's my thought. If if God was really trying to convince Pharaoh, like in a one-time show, to let his people go, don't you think he could have done it? Like, why does it take 10 plagues? Does that seem like crazy? I'll give you an example. So, um, say I have one of you in the spot, and they let me to go talk to Pharaoh, and I show up, and I say, listen, the Almighty God, my God's bigger than your God, the Almighty God says, you have my people, you've kept them in bondage, and I want them freed. So, uh, let's just go take a look out your window, and we look out the window, and we have the Sphinx, that still has its nose on it, and he says, take a look. And he just lifts his staff, and it just obliterates. 
Then he goes, let me just show you something else. So the courtroom is all hanging out, you know, and they have their shaved heads and the whole deal. And he just points the staff at someone, and they just turn up. Like, this is how movies would do it, right? And they would just burn up in smoke like that. And then they say, dear Pharaoh, you're next. What do you think Pharaoh's reaction would be when he says, we want to go and take our people out? I think that would have worked, personally. Instead, they go in chapter 5, and he says, I want to let the people go. Okay. Pharaoh says, no. And Moses leaves. There's no magic show or anything. There isn't anything amazing. He just leaves. Pharaoh gets so angry, in fact, he turns the screws on the people, and he says, you know what? I want you to continue to make the same amount of bricks, but now you have to go find your own straw. And so how did this make the people of Israel react? Not so great. Just imagine you have, you're having a not great employment situation, and one of your coworkers stands up and says, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of this. We're, we're working too much overtime. They walk in there. This would be like an episode of The Office. And then he walks back out and he goes, uh, we still have overtime, but we're not going to get paid for it. Like, how would you feel about this? The, the people are not happy at all with Moses. Frustration is rising. So then they go to talk to Pharaoh again, and the plagues start to come. And it is a little bit of, my God is bigger than your God, because who did they worship as Egyptians? They had multiple gods, multiple gods. But if you know anything about Egyptian worship, you know they worship the Nile, and they worship the sun. And to bookend this situation, God says, I'm going to take out the Nile, make it undrinkable to you. And he says, I'm going to take out the sun for three days. That would have kind of been a wake-up call, but it takes nine plagues to make this happen. And so it's stretching along. And there's also a little bit of naturalness. I don't want to say that Pharaoh would have recognized these as just natural occurrences, but there's a fair amount of these things that I think they would have struggled with before. There's a history of a locust swarm that comes through, I can't remember how many years, into Egypt. Now, I'm not saying it's not a miracle. I'm just saying there's a certain naturalness to this. The river becomes blood or undrinkable. Then that ruins the whole ecosystem. Then these frogs leave the river and swarm everywhere. And what happens when you have frogs out on dry land? Egypt is not exactly like a swamp. So the frogs all leave the water because it's undrinkable. Where do they go? They go into the houses that says they're everywhere, and then what happens to them? They die. And what happens when you have a dead body? Now, I don't know this for sure, but what happens when you have dead bodies? Like you're driving along the road, you see an animal. Often there's like flies and bugs. So now we have this plague. Now there's a certain naturalness to this. This is all I'm saying. Now we have this plague of gnats. Then we have a plague of flies. And then flies carry disease, and suddenly the animals are all sick. They get boils, and now weather is coming down, the hail, and these locusts swing down and obliterate everything. I think Pharaoh in his mind could have said, well, you maybe said that, but I think it's just something that's natural. Maybe this is your God, but maybe not. Because he seems to relent when it backs off, but then he changes his mind. and goes, you know, I wonder if his advisors are talking to him and say, you know what, this happened like 52 years ago where we had this problem with these flies. And it, it, somehow he changes his mind and goes back and forth and back and forth. If you look at it, what I mean by naturalness is if you disobey God as Pharaoh was doing, there's natural consequences that come in your life, no matter what. Some commentators have looked at this, this idea of starting with water and ending in darkness as a reversal of Genesis 1. I'm not saying this for sure, but I think it's an interesting idea. This is Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth is tovu vavohu is how they say it, formless and empty, 
and darkness is over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Before God fixes everything up, as, as we look at creation, his first creative act is to make the stuff. And what's the problem with it? It's dark. It's formless. There's no land. There's no life. It's just, it's got to get fixed, right? And some have argued it looks like the parables are actually kind of reversing this process. So at creation, everything is in harmony. Everything is wonderful when God gets done, right? Literally, dinosaurs and human beings could have interacted without trouble. They, they could have, uh, the weather was perfect. There was no problems. There's no sin. There's no problems in relationship. There's no clowns. I mean, everything is perfect. And then sin enters the world, and it brings about this chaos in a sense, right? They're saying, the commentators who look at this to say, there's something to this. It starts with the blood, and then the the uh, animals which worked in harmony are now infesting your life and these insects are bringing disease and weather, instead of being perfect, is turning on you and it, things are getting worse and worse and it ends with what? Complete darkness. There's a naturalness to that. Let me give you another example. Uh, this is you. You have to do some imagining right here. This is you at the doctor. You're 50 two years old, and you go to the doctor, and of course, what do they tell you when you're a male who's 52? Your cholesterol is terrible. I think that's just like on the checklist. They don't even tell you if it's good or not. They just look on the list. They're like, your cholesterol is terrible. I didn't even get a test. It's terrible. So then they give you these instructions, right? You have to eat this food or not eat this food. Is anyone familiar with this process? Is it, (laughs) this is, and then they put you on drugs and things like that. This is not, we're talking about that. But they usually say you got to eat this and not eat that. Now, you leave that appointment, and you're in the car ride with your wife, and you start talking, and you're like, listen, that person is just on this power trip. They're telling me i got to eat this and that. You know what? I bet they own a health food store, and they just want to make money off me. Is that what you're going to say when the doctor says this to you? Are you going to say, you know what? I think I better eat pretty well because the doctor is going to find me. They're going to, like, send a bill to my house and, and make this. They're going to punish me in somehow. No. What happens if you don't follow the doctor's advice? You die. You get, yeah, you get heart problems and issues and health issues that go along with it. So the consequences of the doctor's law are natural. Does that make sense? Now, a doctor just studied how you live physically. God made you. God knows you physically. God knows you emotionally. God knows you psychologically. God understands you spiritually, and God says, here are my laws. My laws are like medicine. When you follow my laws, your life is better. When you don't, it brings chaos in your life. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And, right, does this make sense? Everyone agrees with this? What happens if you don't? What happens if you find your identity in something besides God? Like work. Can you excel at work if you say, this is my primary deal I'm going to do? Without a doubt. I mean, this is not that hard, but this is kind of how it works in the world. You've got these cups, like full, like family and your spouse and work. You have these three things. In order to fill one up more, you have to take from one. And there's consequences that go with it, isn't there? There's going to be friction in relationships. You can be the best employee, and you can make money. I have no doubt about that. But that other things are going to suffer. And down the line, you're going to wake and say, you know what, I've ruined some relationships here. There's friction now. And eventually, it actually takes your physical health. 
if you become this workaholic? What happens if you don't want to forgive someone? That's another example. God says we're forgiving human beings. Forgive like I have forgiven you. What happens if you don't want to forgive someone? There's a natural, God does not say, all right, you forgive someone or I'm going to give you a fender bender on the way home. That does not happen. When you tell a lie, your nose does not actually grow like Pinocchio, right? I mean, this would be, we couldn't even talk. This would be perfect room probably for most of us as our nose would be touching, it would be very awkward. We'd feel like Eskimos kissing all the time. It would be terrible. So, so you have this situation. God does not threaten like arbitrary punishment if you don't follow him. Instead, God says there's some natural consequences. What happens if you don't forgive people? You get bitter. You get frustrated. And you say, you know what? I'm going to take this. I am not going to forgive you. And that person doesn't care. Do you know that? They just move on with their life. And here you are saying like, oh, I'm going to get them. I'm never going to let go. I'm never going to forgive. Unless you let go, this root of bitterness goes deeper and deeper and deeper. On top of that, it affects your health. On top of that, I mean, this is just natural consequences of this bitterness. On top of that, sometimes they call it transference. What happens if, now this might be a little personal, some, um, some man violated you when you were younger and you say, I can never let that go and forget. I'm guessing you will never let another man into your life like you should to love you. This is a struggle. And this has happened to a lot of people. Or uh, say a woman hurt you in some way. And, and now you, any woman that gets into your life, you're always a little hesitant and you want to be, or maybe it's someone of a different race and now you have labeled every person in that race because of this bitterness I'm going to hold on to. God says you're a forgiving person. God says forgive like I forgive. Otherwise, this affects your life. These are natural consequences. Does this make sense? So we've come this far. God says if you follow my laws, your life is better. Do we all agree? Does that make sense? However, I, is that enough? If God is just like a judge that says, follow my rules or things are better, is that enough? I, I don't think it is. What makes God unique compared to all other gods is that God is not just some judge. It's that God is a saving judge. And let me explain that. You can pick out any other religion. It's something I've shared with you before. You can pick any religion, and everyone involves a God who judges. You do the right things, and then you get approved. This is Islam. This is, uh, you think about, what's the sweetest, nicest person you know? And you think, maybe they're a Buddhist. You ever met a Buddhist that's mean? This doesn't make sense, right? This doesn't, maybe you have. But it doesn't make sense because Buddhists are all supposed to be kind. But it fits under the same system. The only way you escape the reincarnation wheel in Buddhism is by doing the right things. So essentially, their God is primarily a judge. And I want to show you that our God is unique and that not only is he a judge of the world, but he's a saving judge. What I mean is this. 1,500 years later, after this, we have another situation where the world goes dark. Can you think of it? This is from Matthew uh, chapter 27. I've got to go one more section. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried, out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Labas Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness goes over the whole planet. When is the last time that there was perfect harmony in the world? Once sin entered the world, there is never a perfect harmony again. When is the next time that God said, so he creates the world and he said, it is very good. When is the next time God praises something? Can you think just in your head? 
Jesus' baptism, he says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. There's perfect harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything is fantastic. Everything is wonderful. In order for you to live with God, the judge has to become the judged. And this perfect unity has to be torn apart. And this destruction has to come. And Jesus has to become the enemy of God. And Jesus has to have a relationship. The only good one left has to be broken so that your sins can be forgiven. And when we say, God, I like my choices better than your choices, God can say those are forgiven, and he can freely open his arms to be with you. Why why did God send the plagues? It It wasn't just to show his raw power. Here's an example. God says, for now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and the people with the plague that would have wiped you off the earth. God said, this isn't that hard, Egyptian people. I could have blown you up a long time ago. This is not difficult. But I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you the power that, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Literally th- millions of people over thousands of years can say this is the true God. Egyptians, it says, God actually pulls his punches with the hailstorm. If, if his goal was just to obliterate people, wouldn't he do as much destruction as possible? Wouldn't that be the goal? If you're playing some video game where you're supposed to bring destruction, isn't the ultimate goal destruction? That's not how our God functions. Instead, before the hailstorm, he says to the people in chapter 9, uh, just so you know, I'm sending a hailstorm. You might want to take your animals inside. And it says the people who feared God, the Egyptians who feared God, brought their animals inside. God is not doing this primarily for destruction. He's doing it to, A, let his name be shown, even to the Egyptians, and to show the world that he's a God who saves. So now, I said we're going to emphasize, this is the last point we're going to make. We're going to emphasize this, uh, this coming year, sharing our faith. Because we've emphasized getting into God's word. We've done a fantastic job. We've, done, we've talked about worship since we started. Now this year, we're focusing on reaching out to people who don't know Jesus. Here's the problem. Do you ever feel like when you share your faith, you're coming off as a little bit arrogant? Yeah, isn't that tricky? It's impossible not to. And you could, you, has this scenario ever happened to you? You're, you're talking to someone about your faith, and they talk to you, and they say, you know what? Um, it's a little bit arrogant of you to tell me. They're a pluralist, remember, religious pluralist. It's a little bit arrogant for you to tell me that your idea is better than mine. The right response, actually, it's a little snarky, but I'm not saying you should do this, is, isn't a little bit arrogant of you to tell me that my idea is arrogant. Because ultimately they're showing it. So this is the struggle, right? So now you cannot share your faith without the assumption that your idea is superior. It's impossible. And maybe you've met someone who's done this, and you're talking about your faith, and they're like, listen, God is like, and this is a classic illustration, the elephant, which I've shared with you before. God is like this giant elephant with three blind men. And the reason they use this illustration is because you cannot redo this. They will not let you find three blind men and go into the zoo to, to tell you what an elephant looks like. But they say this. Religion is like this. God is like this elephant and three blind men. One holds the tail, one holds the leg, and then one holds like the tusk. How do we know which is right? Because one says it's like a snake, one says it's like a stone pillar, and one says it's like a rock. Well, the assumption is that that person somehow has clarity and can say all religion is kind of clueless and doesn't understand what these parts are. Another example, same thing, is some people say that the true God, and it, there's like one God up on top of this mountain. I've shared this with you before. 
and you can all make your way up. And all these people are just making their journey up to God. And I can see that. And ultimately, this leads to the point. No matter where you leave on a mountain to get to the top, and you're going to go to the top, it doesn't matter which path you take, you kind of all end up at the top, right? But what's the assumption? Somehow, even though we're blinded by our little path, that person is able to be up in the sky and see us all climbing up like little ants to the right spot. We have to, it's impossible not to give the impression and the truth that your idea is superior. But you got something worth sharing. You can say, my God is not about judgment, my God is about saving. You're far from God and the world is not perfect, and I think you know that. But we have a God who says, the judge is willing to become the judged. The judge is willing to become destroyed so that you can be made whole. You don't have to be a jerk about it. But in a loving, in a kind, in a beautiful way, you can say, my God is the Savior of the world, and I know you're hurting, and I want to share something with you that's pretty special. The judge became the judge. The judge was destroyed so that you could be made whole.